Sometimes we hear things so often that our eyes start to glaze over whenever that story comes up again. When we hear the story in John chapter 3, where Jesus is speaking to a man named Nicodemus, you probably heard some of the things that you often hear in our culture. Uh, if you were to ask an average uh, Christian uh, and, and ask them what their favorite verse is, you get lots of different ones, but I bet that the uh, most famous one you're going to get and the most common one you'll get from Christians is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Sometimes you see that held up in uh, football games there in the United States by evangelicals and Christians who are very excited about their faith. But you also probably have heard many times, especially if you come from an evangelical direction, is how important it is to be born again, or people describing themselves as a born-again Christian. Um, the version that we read here today, the New Revised Standard Version, recognizes that there's actually two ways to translate that phrase. It can be born again, but it also in Greek means, at the same time, it means born from above. And this version uses that, and other versions use born again. Problem is, is that so often we hear these things, we get a, a bead on what they mean, we kind of understand, and so we just stop listening sometimes. I think, in fact, that this is a story that really challenges us about what the basis of our faith is. I'd like to speak to you today about really three things that I think, or three uh, groups that this points to. It speaks in this uh, conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. Jesus is speaking about the history of Israel. Jesus is speaking, I think, looking forward to a truth about the church. And Jesus, of course, is speaking to us as individuals, his modern-day followers, about where the foundation of our faith really needs to lie. Now, you've heard this story many times, and maybe you know already, but to give you a little bit of background about why this conversation comes up at all, we're told that a man named Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And sometimes, unfortunately, because of bad preaching and teaching, sometimes we believe Pharisee equals bad. That's not actually really true. In many ways, Jesus gets in arguments with Pharisees because Pharisees have their, their position about Scripture is probably closest to Jesus as himself. Pharisees were people who weren't members of the temple establishment. They weren't priests. But they were, however, was teachers. And so in synagogues and various places throughout Israel and also various places throughout the Roman Empire where Jews gathered, Pharisees would often be people who took it upon themselves to educate average people about how to live according to the law of Moses. Pharisees also believed in the resurrection, uh, and so Jesus, of course, speaks about resurrection often. The Sadducees, who were the, the priests of the temple establishment, did not. Here's an example as well that not all Pharisees disagreed with Jesus and were angry at him. Here we find Nicodemus, we're told, is a leader of Israel. A little bit later, we're, we're learning that he is a member of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin in Israel were not government. The government was controlled by the Romans, and so if you know about Jesus' trial, why is it that he's brought before Pontius Pilate? Because it's only the Romans who can pronounce a death sentence. It's the Romans who take care of the court system. The Sanhedrin, however, were the highest court of the land for religious matters. If you had a religious question about the law of Moses, or a question about divorce, or civil matters as opposed to criminal ones, you would go to the Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin had people who were highly respectable, highly religious, and people who had a certain amount of influence. And they would have all been educated people. Nicodemus is one of these people at the top. And we also learn that Nicodemus is a person who comes to believe in Jesus. Because towards the end of, of the Gospels, we find that Nicodemus, when Jesus is being accused by the Sanhedrin, he alone is one amidst the Sanhedrin who says, no, this is not right. The trial is a miscarriage of justice. 
He also is one who spends his own money to pay for spices and anointing so that when Jesus dies and he's placed in the tomb of um, of uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, that Nicodemus stands up and risks his own life because he could be condemned by the Romans for doing it. So we know something about Nicodemus. Nicodemus, uh, in John's Gospel, comes out of the dark, which symbolizes ignorance and pride and foolishness, and comes into the light in the night to speak to Jesus. And that's why this conversation is happening. Now, here's what's interesting, and where I think the challenge lies. When you look at Nicodemus, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, ask yourself what it is he seems to be asking. Why is it that he came to Jesus? These are the words that he says to begin this conversation. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. It's come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Nicodemus, as we know, is somebody who comes to believe in Jesus. He's not being sarcastic or trying to trip him up. He's saying, you're a rabbi, you're a teacher. And we know you're a good teacher because we've seen God do great things to you. What do you think Nicodemus is looking for? When he addresses him as a teacher, he's saying, teach me something. I want to know some wisdom. Give me some advice. This is, in fact, something that happens in the Gospels all the time. Do you remember the story of the uh, rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Give me some good advice. And Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. And he says, oh, I've been doing that all, all, the, all along. Just give me a little bit more. I need to tweak my lifestyle a bit, maybe. And then Jesus says, okay, Sonny, here's what you got to do. <laughs> Sell everything. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. It's not what I was asking for, Jesus. I wanted some advice. I didn't want to tell you to, to, to uh, you to tell me, throw away everything about my old trust in you. Or another time, Jesus is confronted by a man who says to him, Jesus, um, what are the greatest commandments? Jesus says, well, well, what do you think? And he says, well, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Absolutely. Go ahead. Jesus says, you got it right. And then he says, well, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus, I'm glad you asked. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Here's what a neighbor is. It's not just theoretics. It's not just sort of what possibly could be my neighbor. It's Here's a man dying by the side of the road that you have no real responsibility towards because you're a Samaritan, and he's a Jew, and yet you risk your life by going, helping this man who may be in ambush. Maybe he's tricking you, but you're risking your life to save him. And then what do you do? You risk some of your own expense, some of your own time to protect this man, to keep him safe, and to make sure he is on his way. Jesus says to this man who's looking for advice, well, in fact, what you need is full-on commitment. You need Put some skin in the game. I think this is exactly what's happening with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is saying, what teaching can you give me? And then what does Jesus do when he responds? Instead of saying, well, here's a pamphlet. Read up on this. Here's what I've written about it. He says instead, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, here's one of the things that we gloss over when we hear this story. Think for a moment about what birth involves. I'll give you an example of one of the first things that birth involves. When I was uh, yesterday at the skating arena, one of my daughters takes figure skating lessons. So I'm there in the arena stands, as I as I am each time on Saturday morning when I bring her. And all the parents, of course, are there hunched over their phones. And then I notice one of the parents hunched over their phones also has a little package next to her. And in that little package is a baby who looks like she's a couple months old. And she's sleeping, and she's got her little soother in there. And that's cute, and I look over there, and that's wonderful. 
And then I, I look a little bit, uh, and uh, then I look back, and the baby's waking up. And I notice that her eyes are open, but her eyes are about the size of silver dollars. Like, they're huge. And what's really arresting about her is I look over, and she's staring at me. And I go, oh, that's cute, and I make a smile, but, you know, she doesn't really react. And then I look at the what's going on in the ice, and I look five minutes later, and she's still staring at me. Here's what's so wonderful and interesting about babies. Everything's new. Like, she's seen her mom, seen her dad, I guess. And then she's looking at this fuzzy shape just a few feet away from her, thinking probably, like, what is this? Like, there's these colors, there's this swoosh, kind of looks like dad, kind of doesn't look like dad. What is it? Fascinating. You know, we've seen people a thousand times, so we just don't pay attention to them unless their hair's on fire or something, right? But a baby sees human beings, other human beings for the first time, and it is new, absolutely new. That's what I'd say one of the first things about birth is it's a new life and a new slate. Everything is new for a baby. Here's another thing. It's true about birth. Birth is not something we choose or have control over. I have had the privilege of being at the birth of my four daughters. And I can tell you something. that None of those really wanted to come out very much. <laughs> and moreover, when they finally did come out, they were not happy about it because they screamed their heads off. <laughs> Now, the thing about birth is, is that it happens because of the actions of a mother's body, pushing that baby out into the world where the baby wants to go out into the world or doesn't want to go out into the world, it's there. Disorienting, difficult, and sometimes uh, I've heard of labors that have been really difficult and long and the baby doesn't want to come out. These two realities are true. Birth brings about a completely new slate and a new life. Birth is also something that we do not have the power over ourselves. And that's really important when you look at that language of born again or born from above, how I mentioned they mean both things. I don't think that's a coincidence. To be born again means to be reborn. To be born from above means to be born not by your own power, but by the power of the one who's above us, the power of God. I think Nicodemus is kind of aware of this, and about God, Jesus says to him, you know, must be born from above or born again, and then Nicodemus comes back and he answers and says, look, how can anyone be born after having grown old? And when enter a second time into the mother's womb, be born. I don't think Nicodemus is a dummy, like, duh, how do I go back and be born again? <laughs> I think instead what Nicodemus is saying is, look, I've heard this song and dance before. Hasn't it been true that oftentimes in Israel's history, we've been born again? We've given a new chance. God has said, wipe the slate clean, start again. Think about that story about Noah and the flood. God notices the earth is wayward, and he gives Noah and his family a new chance. He puts them into the ark. He wipes everything up and says, here's a fresh, green, new earth. Turn a few pages in the Bible, and you find people have multiplied. And what do they do? They build the Tower of Babel and rebellion against God. Israel. Israel is uh, uh, safe in Egypt, and then Egypt turns against them. They're suppressed. They cry out to God, please save us from this death that we're experiencing. And God sends Moses, and by mighty power leads them to the Red Sea and, and leads them to the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert and says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And the people say, yes, we make this covenant with you, God. And, and then Moses says, uh, I'm going to go up the mountain, and God's going to give me some rules I put some casseroles in the freezer. You're going to be fine while I'm gone. Here's my cell phone number. And then when he comes down, what does he find? God has wiped the slate clean. Here's a new start, Israel, and they're worshiping a golden calf. 
And it's up there for 40 days. It's not as if he was gone for 40 years. After 40 days, they've already gone astray. Or when Israel is destroyed by Babylon, everybody's carried off in slavery, and Babylon destroys the nations that it comes and, 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 and attacks. Everybody thinks Israel's gone. It's wiped off the slate, and God brings them back from the dead by restoring their nation, restoring the temple, telling to them, now you are free, and you can kind, and now that you've been robbed of your idols and, and, and your false kings, you can start again. And why does Nicodemus come to Jesus? Because they started again, and it all went sour. Jesus, in fact, says later, it's just, I'm telling you these things, and nobody's getting it. Even you, a teacher of Israel, you're not getting it. All of these rebirths have happened and nothing is taken. If we're honest, we look at the state of the church, we have to say the same thing. There have been renewals throughout the state of the church throughout history. The Reformation happened, and in many ways, wonderful recovery of the scriptures, a wonderful recovery that, that God doesn't, doesn't judge us just on the actions and our merit, but by faith. And yet, what did the Reformation bring in? How many centuries of conflict and war? In North America, we saw the Great Awakening in the, in the 18th and 19th century, and, and, and preachers would go out throughout the towns and villages of the West, and people would embrace uh, Christ, and, and churches were built. We've gone through a liturgical renewal in the Anglican Church. We've gone through charismatic renewals, and all of these renewals, and what do we find? Is the church strong? Is it this light on the hill where everybody in our culture looks and says, wow. Look at what Jesus is doing wonderfully through these people. Well, sometimes, but many times not. Right? Or let's go a little bit closer to home. Often have we said, look, there's something that really is not so good in my life and I want to change. Maybe uh, December comes to an end and January rolls around and you start making some resolutions about how your life needs to change. When you go to the gym in January and it's packed full of people who say, I want to make a change in my life. Go now in March. Not so full, is it? The people who wanted to make a change didn't last. Or I think even now, Lent is barely two weeks in. <clears throat> How many of us have already fallen short of the Lenten devotions you've given to God? How easy is it for us to say, as, as Nicodemus does, look, how could we even go back and start again? Is there really a fresh start? Because we've heard this song and dance before, and it's never been taken. I think when Jesus answers this, he encourages us not to look at our failures or the ways that we have fallen short. Instead, I'm thinking that Jesus, in fact, is saying to look to him. Listen to what Jesus says when he responds in verse 5. I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it goes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Who are these words true of? Not true of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is saying to himself, I have often been reborn. Israel has been reborn and hasn't taken. I think Jesus, in fact, is pointing to himself. Because if we look at what Jesus has done and what he does in his ministry, what is Jesus leading up to? Jesus refers to this when he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. I believe that Jesus is speaking about himself. Because at the end of Jesus' ministry, what happens? Jesus gives up his spirit and dies. He is buried in the womb of the earth. And by the power of God's Holy Spirit, he is raised up out of that tomb and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is born of the flesh and not, or born of the spirit, not of the flesh. 
Jesus, too, he, the Spirit goes where he wills, and you do not know where it comes from or where it will go. What happens when Jesus is resurrected? Jesus appears to Mary, disappear. He appears to the disciples in a locked room, disappear. Appears to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee on the shore while they're out fishing, and disappear. Jesus ascends into heaven and away from their sight. Jesus moves wherever the Spirit leads him, regardless of whether natural mechanics <clears throat> say he shouldn't. Jesus lives by the Spirit, not by the Jesus is the one who he says we are to look to if we truly want what's reborn. Because God rebirths Jesus from the womb of the earth, and he rebirths him from the power of Almighty God. And it's deeply important for us because when we look for ourselves to be renewed, we make these statements about how we want to change, we grit our teeth, what we often look for is we'll Google something on the internet, what's a good diet plan, or how do you manage your anger, or how do you parent better, or how do you improve this, that, or the other thing. Or churches look about what's this new renewal program we want to implement, and we think about program and program and program, and they may be good ones. But if we look only to these things, we will be lost because Jesus says you're looking, frankly, in the wrong direction. If you think another piece of information is going to really change it for you, it won't. What's going to change? It's going to change by you being united with me and leaning on me with your whole self. You know, when Jesus says uh, you must enter the kingdom and be reborn through water and the spirit, I think he's making an allusion to baptism. When he's speaking about baptism, what do we do? You know, the one thing about baptism, you can't do it yourself. You can do certain things. You can help in the church. You can say you believe, but in the end, what do you do with <laughs> baptism? Please baptize me, and somebody else does it for you. It is a reliance and a trust in someone who represents Christ and to let yourself symbolically die and symbolically be raised out of the earth or out of the water. I have a, a friend whose parents lived many years in China teaching there. And one of the things they said is when they went to their church for a baptism, it was often a really profound experience because many people in China don't know how to swim. They've never had the opportunity. And so when you are coming down into a full immersion tank where you're going to be baptized and a person cannot swim and they lean back, they are really placing their life in another person's hand. And for them, it is a frightening experience. But as they're coming up out of the water, it just underlines that you're giving your life to Christ. And where I find the rebirth is not because I'm smart and powerful and disciplined. I'm finding a rebirth because I said, Jesus, you take the wheel. You're the one who can do this. You can bring about a birth in me, a rebirth that will last because you are the one who has come from me. What is our calling? We want to improve. When we look in the mirror and we see that things need to change. When the church looks in the mirror and says things need to change. Not a simple formula, here's the program to do it, but there is one thing that is always consistent in any program or non-program that works. It is a program that encourages us to put our full faith in Christ. And then we have this opportunity to look inside of ourselves and to spend and carve time, carve out time for Jesus. We do this in prayer when we come to him and simply say, Jesus, show me where you've been present in my life. Show me where it is that you want me to go. One of those great things that we do here throughout the Lenten season and throughout the year is that examine we do it confident at the end of the day. Where were you present, Jesus? I'm not going to go where you lead me because you're the one I trust. But here's another wonderful thing we do when we gather on Sunday. Just like in baptism, you'll lean back and place yourself in the hands of somebody else. 
in the Eucharist, we put our hands forward and receive food given by somebody else. Jesus says, here I am, your heavenly food. I've come from above and I'm here to feed you. Learn to rely on Jesus. Find ways in your daily life to discipline yourself to turn to him again and again. And it is through his power and grace that the things you struggle with day in and day out, those fingers that death and sin have on you can start being pried off because Jesus has the power to pry them out of your life, just like he had the power to crush sin and death under his feet. Yes, we're in Lent. And yes, it can be difficult. But remember what Lent is. Lent is a road to the cross and the resurrection. We are walking to the cross because that is where Jesus defeated sin and death. And we're walking to the cross as tough as it may be because we want to be where Jesus is. Because when we are with Jesus at the point of his death, we are also with Jesus at the place where he is raised from death. Trust in Christ. Let yourself be united to him. And you will find that he has the power to bring victory for the sweat of your brow cannot.